I mean, like, where do I even begin? From just from what I've researched off of you, you're a doctor, a comedian, a yoga teacher, a corporate speaker. Like, how on earth do you go about classifying yourself first and foremost? Who is Dr. Russell Kennedy? Well, I guess, uh, yeah, it, it's different. You know, like when I was younger, I used to to think that accomplishment was everything. So that's why I've accomplished all these things. So I don't know. It's really hard. It depends on what day of the week you get me, really. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, what is it that made you start looking into getting like your MD and researching more of the neuroscience field and, and getting to you are now professionally? Well, I grew up with a father who had uh, schizophrenia and bipolar. So the house was often, you know, dropped into chaos. So I developed this hypervigilance when I was a child that sort of led into anxiety as I became like a young teen and a teenager. And and then, uh, you know, I thought, well, you know, what am I going to do? I could never help my father, but I, I could try. So I, I went through medical school and and my dad, unfortunately, didn't see me get into medical school, which is, which is too bad. But um, I was always interested in the brain, like I did my pre-med in neuroscience. And I thought, well, what, what can I do to really make the field a little bit different? Because traditional therapy doesn't really seem to be working for a lot of people. You know, that talk therapy where you sit in an office and you, for an hour a week, talk about, you know, your childhood or what troubles you or whatever. I did that for many years and I find myself, it, it didn't really help my own anxiety and my own anxiety was pretty crippling at points. So I, I wound up doing, you know, different psychedelics in my early fifties, like LSD and ayahuasca. And, and I really found that my anxiety was more to do with the alarm in my body from my old trauma than it was to do with my mind. My mind was just basically the, the sort of the translator of it. So I just really got interested in neuroscience and doing more and more you know, stuff in that field, just to try and understand, you know, from the ethereal part where I, you know, I have a yoga, I'm a yoga teacher and a meditation teacher. And then, but I tried to match that up. Like, how does that fit into the science of the brain? Like, how does the brain, what happens to the brain when we meditate? What happens to the brain when we make uh, affirmations? What happens to the brain when we're alarmed? And then try to try to turn that into practical solutions for people, because I'm really about trying to make sure people don't have to suffer with anxiety like I did. And I think the current therapies that we have right now, they help, but they don't really fix the underlying problem. They help you deal with the symptoms, but they don't really fix the underlying root cause, which I believe is, you know, kind of old trauma that's just rooted in the body. That actually makes a lot of sense. Now, actually, one of my questions surrounding that, I know that you've mentioned, and I've actually heard it a lot as well, doing talk therapy, you hear a lot about people wanting to write down, you know, their affirmations, recite them every day. And, you know, of course, with repetition, sometimes you can get yourself into a better mind state. But you're right, at the end of the day, it doesn't necessarily solve the problem at its core. Would you say that in a way, it's almost like, a type of avoidance strategy towards the actual problems deep down in the core? Well, I think it's, it's a peripheral strategy to try and help it. So, but yeah, I don't think it's, I think really, if you want to get at the core of it, you have to, you know, dig in there and you've got to feel it to heal it. You've got to go in there and feel that pain because often what people will do when they feel pain is they'll run from it. 
which is natural. It's a, it's a normal or, you know, organism, human organism, whatever organism you are, when there's some noxious stimulus, you will avoid it. And unfortunately, I think what happens when we're younger is that we experience these, experience these traumas that are too much for us to bear. And we stuff those problems down into our body so that our minds can still function. But the problem is still there. And unless you actually deal with the root cause, which is this alarm, I believe, stored in your body, then the treating the thoughts really don't, doesn't really make that much difference long term. Like one of my favorite quotes that I, I made up myself is you can't fix a feeling problem with a thinking solution. And I think that's what CBT tries to do. They try and fix this underlying, you know, unconscious program, this unconscious fear-based program that we run since we were children by, by talking to it. And I think you have to feel it. I think you have to get into the same room with it and feel that program and change it. Uh, and that fixes it at its core. But affirmations, I have nothing against affirmations, provided that you feel them while you say them. If you just say, if you wake up in the morning and go, I am going to be abundant today. I am going to feel good today. You know, you really have to feel it while you're saying it, you know? And if you, if you really, and I have nothing against affirmations either, but if you're going to do it, do it with emotion and do it in front of a mirror, you know, where you kind of hold your brain accountable for, for following through with this. Like look yourself in the eyes while you say it, which is really difficult, by the way. It's really hard to look at yourself in the eyes and say something. Absolutely. I, I've actually fallen victim to this many, many a times. It's it's helped for sure a little bit. But uh, of course, you're, it's like you said, you have to really dive into the root of the problem in order to actually uh, create a solution for it. So I, I can completely understand that. And going back actually a little bit to your earlier life, your your father had suffered from mental illness as well, schizophrenia and and bipolar. First of all, to have to go through something like that is at a young age, I couldn't even imagine how much strength and how much strength it takes. And also just the amount of healing that would be needed after the fact, you know, how did your, you and your family get through all of the, the trials and pitfalls that came with your father's condition? Yeah. I mean, we didn't have much of a choice at the time, Taylor. I mean, we just, you know, we really, it was just the way things were. Mm -hmm. And because I grew up with him and he, you know, he got progressively more uh, mentally ill as I got older. And, you know, as I got into my mid to late teens, I started to get a little more wherewithal about, you know, what, what life is about for him and, and, and what it's, what it's like for other people as well. And how different my life is from other, other people, because I really did feel like I had to take care of them a lot of the time. My mother was a registered nurse. She was the breadwinner for the family. So she'd often work 12 hour shifts. So it was kind of me that looked after him. I have a younger brother as well, and he helped as well. But, but my brother is a lot more, he's a lot less sensitive than I am. And he's mm -hmm. a lot, you know, stuff just sort of flows off his back a lot easier than me. I, I t internalize all this stuff. So I felt a lot of my dad's pain. And, and I think that was one of the reasons what that drove me to become a doctor to kind of help other people because I felt so powerless and helpless to help him that and that's one of the reasons I wrote the book is because I wanted his pain to mean something because I he was a very intelligent guy, like a very great, great sense of humor, very nurturing, caring, loving. Um, but, you know, his life really was robbed from him by, by mental illness and his future. You know, he always wanted to to write a book or, or to, you know, to do something professional with his life. And he was a radio announcer for many years and, and did quite well at that. And, 
as his mental illness got worse, you know, he wasn't able to work. And, you know, it really, I just really saw him deteriorate. And for a boy to watch his dad deteriorate in front of his eyes, it's very difficult because that's your role model as to how you're supposed to be in the world. So I, I think in a way I'm kind of, kind of evening the score up a little bit with him and, you know, you know, you couldn't do this dad, but I'll do it, you know, for us, I'll do it, you know, for you and for me. And, and that would kind of kept me going writing the book because the book was fairly intense, especially early on. So, so that was, that was mostly my goal was to try and make his suffering and my suffering and the family suffering really mean something to help other people. Like, honestly, you've done that, just that, I mean, You've been in business now for, for many years. And of course, you wrote this book. Tell me a little bit about, you know, what the book dives into. I saw that you, I could easily get it on Amazon, which I definitely plan on doing so because I've always wanted to kind of learn a little bit more on just ways that I can manage my anxiety because I'm the type of person in a way that when I get into my anxious moods, I actually am the one to laugh. I get so yeah. stressed and, you know, you don't know how to handle these things in the moment. So you kind of have to turn on the attitude in a way of defense mechanism almost. Yeah. I mean, we all have our different defense mechanisms. Some people turn into people pleasers. Yes. You know? some, yeah. Some people get angry. Some people become very manipulative. Some people become narcissistic, passive aggressive, all this kind of stuff, you know, and the book, essentially, it's called Anxiety Rx ostensibly it's about anxiety but really it's about childhood wounding and how it shows up you know it showed up in me as anxiety but it shows up in a lot of my patients as eating disorders as uh, depression as OCD all this kind of stuff because you know when we don't get our needs met our attachment needs met as children you know if we have a trauma and and there's no one there to really that we can talk to or tell or our parents are wrapped up in their own traumas. So we have to pretty much kind of raise ourselves in a way, at least emotionally. It's very difficult to kind of make our way through. So we develop coping strategies to be able to do that. And your coping strategies may be that you just sort of rise up and become a bad bitch, you know, like whatever <laughs> you have, whatever you have to do, to, but it's a protective mechanism, right? Absolutely. Other people, yeah. Other people will become people pleasers. They'd be like, well, what can I do for you? You know, if, if someone gets mad at you, it's like, oh, what can I do for you? Can I help you in some way? And that's how they kind of managed it as children. So we wind up developing all these uh, what somatic experiencing therapy calls defensive accommodations where we're not getting our needs met as a child. And so we find ways to get our needs met in sort of maladaptive ways. If we don't get our needs met with, you know, a, a, you know, adaptive attached love, we'll find another way of doing that. And that's, you know, no one goes to the newborn nursery and goes, that baby over there is a narcissist. That baby's a people pleaser. It doesn't work that way. It's our experiences in life that make us develop these coping strategies that, you know, we feel safe in because they're familiar to us. But unfortunately, you know, you get into your thirties and your, your forties and you, you get, you go through a divorce because that coping strategy, you know, dismantles your relationships or at least strains them considerably. And then you figure out like, you know, can I do something else? Can I get to the root of the problem that's fueling this, this need to, to get up and be aggressive, you know, or, or to be a people pleaser or mm -hmm. to just completely withdrawal? Can you deal with the, with the issue directly? Can you find the alarm in your body? You know, cause that's likely the place that your younger self lives.
because there is a theory that says that, you know, when you experience significant trauma as a child, part of your psyche stays locked at that age. And then when we get upset, so my guess would be with you, Taylor, is that when you get upset, you regress back to like a six or a seven-year-old who got angry and that's how she <laughs> dealt with it. Yes. Right? So uh, that's I'm what not happened. proud of like, it. That's what happened. No, but, but, it, but it's not your fault. And that's the thing. Here's, here's a big thing is that, you know, you shouldn't be judging yourself for that because as Brene Brown talks about, if you judge yourself for getting angry like that, you're always going to be locked in it. The only way to move past that is to actually really embrace that and realize that that was the strategy that the child in you adopted to be able to sort of survive. And, and then unfortunately, and that works through our childhood while we're still with our parents. But then when we get into the real world and we start having relationships with other people, those coping strategies start to kind of have cracks in them. They start to kind of fail. And, and that's, you know, that's when we have the choice as to whether or not we do something about them or not. And many people don't even know they have the choice and many people don't even know what their particular coping strategy is. And so the book kind of points that out to people like, what do you do when you get alarmed? You know, and where, where do you feel that in your body? Can you localize that? Can you go back to that place, find that child in you that needed to adopt that strategy and soothe that child. And, and, you know, sometimes as the medical doctor, I want to have a seizure when I talk about this, because it sounds so kind of, you know, um, energy healing and all that kind of stuff. But I've really realized that a, a lot of Western medicine is treating symptoms. It's not really treating the root cause. And that's why I left medicine, because I just felt like we weren't really treating the root cause, especially of emotional issues, but physical ones too. And it was really important for me to kind of, you know, have some time with my patients, be able to go into these things and then show them exactly where their trauma sits in their body. A lot of people, it's in their throat. A lot of people, it's in their chest or their solar plexus or their belly and just find it, you know, localize that trauma. I call it finding your alarm. And when you find that alarm, that's a conduit. That's an access point to that younger traumatized version of yourself and all the unconscious programs, the subconscious unconscious programs that that child adopted to survive. And then when we get in the same room with those programs, we can start accepting and, and kind of allowing them to flow a little better so that we don't have to go to them every single time anymore. We can, we can actually have some choice in how we react. And then when we start changing the way we react to things, we start feeling like we have a lot more control over that anxiety rather than just doing the same old coping strategy, you know, getting angry, whatever, having everything blow up and then calm down again. And then things settle out for a while and then everything blows up and it calms down again. And it comes, it just, it's a very common cycle I see with people, Taylor. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely become more and more uh, apparent too. Actually, it's so funny because you mentioned in your book, um, you know, it's, it starts a lot in the earlier years of, you know, your life as a child, they want to break social patterns that were passed on to them by their family members. And yeah. I think it sounds like this book is, would be a huge, huge help to this generation to, to kind of figure out how to go about doing that. Yeah. I mean, I think it's really finding your own traumas because we all have trauma. Like you can't have childhood without trauma. I completely agree. That, yeah. It reminds me of that Buddhist uh, saying that says pain in this human life is unavoidable. 
but suffering is optional. So pain, you know, your parents get divorced, you know, you, you get sick, whatever, that's unavoidable. But suffering, the stuff that we tell ourselves, that's, that's optional. And that's, that's where really, you know, once you start looking at yourself in a negative light, and, and that's what happens in, in homes when there is trauma, because what happens is the child can't, you know, put the trauma onto the parent because the child is completely dependent on the parent for their survival. So if something is going wrong in the house, the child automatically blames themselves. And there's a great saying that says, if you abuse, neglect, or abandon the child, the child doesn't stop loving the parent. They stop loving themselves. Yep. And then that starts this, that starts this narrative inside them. Like, oh, if I could only do something more, better, or different, um, then everything would be okay. And that becomes the internal, the, you know, internal critic. And that winds up, you know, running our lives. And then we try, or just, we spend our lives trying to appease this eternal, uh, internal cr critic. And yeah, it, it just doesn't work. You know, it just, it, it's a very, it's a very short term solution because in, in the, in the early parts, it does feel like we're getting somewhere, but we're not, we're just actually really reinforcing that old maladaptive pattern uh, because it does to some extent work in the short term. You know, worry works in the short term because it, it makes the uncertain certain. If you worry about something, you, you kind of in your mind anyway, make that more certain. Mm -hmm. But in making it more certain, there's, there's a whole lot of alarm that goes along with making your worries more certain. So it, that's why we worry is to make the uncertain certain. And because of what uncertainty typically meant in our childhood. If uncertainty meant a lot of difficulty for you when you were a child, then you will avoid uncertainty. And worry is one of the ways that we avoid uncertainty. But like I said, it's a defensive accommodation. It's not sustainable. And if you adopt that strategy, you know, in your 20s and 30s, it'll start affecting all aspects of your life. It's like just trying to figure out the why behind everything. You know, yeah. it's almost like we're trying to find our own comfort zone. Um, no, it's, it's absolutely exactly what happens. We do develop, you know, except I call it the discomfort zone. But, but other than that, yeah, it's the same thing. Because what's familiar to us in childhood, we equate, human beings equate with security. So what was familiar to you in, in childhood, you will equate with security. I had a patient who was a very attractive woman and had her choice of whatever man she wanted, but she grew up with an abusive alcoholic father. So it, she would only pick the abusive alcoholics as boyfriends. So Freud called this the repetition compulsion, the urge to replicate your childhood circumstance unconsciously in your adulthood. So she would keep picking these abusive alcoholic boyfriends. And of course it wouldn't go well, but mm -hmm. there was part of her that was just when she first got into these relationships with these guys, she was just elated. She just was just on top of the world because she she was re you know reliving her childhood through these guys and we do that we we take what was familiar to us in childhood especially if we had a traumatic childhood and we project that into our future and we make it we kind of make it happen so for me i'll give you an example for me so uh, i grew up in kind of chaos i never really knew when my dad was going to go crazy he could be fine for 18 months at a time uh, at least earlier on, I went, as I got into a late teens and early 20s, he, you know, maybe only had three or four months where he, he was okay. And then, you know, what I would do is I would just kind of wait for the next, the shoe to drop. I was always this hyper vigilant 
waiting and waiting and waiting. And, and I, and I re replicated that chaos in my life. You know, I got into bad relationships. I, I did all sorts of things that, that, that created chaos in my life because I was so familiar with chaos as a child. And it took me a, it took me a long time, Taylor, to stop that pattern. Yeah, you're right. It's crazy. You know, that familiarity is just like, we always want to still be there. We always go to what, again, we were familiar with. And that makes complete sense too. I, I feel like the having relationships with other people is probably one of the most common examples. Because even in my own personal life as well, my father, my father, to preface, was always there for me when I was a child. But he and my mom ne never got married. Uh, so okay. my entire life was literally living with me. You know, going back and forth between mom and dad um, okay. in in a world where at the time everybody had their parents basically living together okay so because my dad wasn't always around all the time I usually picked romantic partners that usually chose to to be with me but be with me at a distance right um, they weren't yeah. usually ready to commit too much and they didn't want to take things you know further within the relationship so I was always begging for more or I was always readjusting my standards to meet, you know, their expectations as opposed to expecting it the other way around. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that, and that makes perfect sense to me, you know? So, so when you think of that, Taylor, can I take you into a little experience just for a second? Yes. Okay. So when you think of, you know, going back and forth between your, the, the two homes and that kind of thing, and, you know, knowing that the other kids were in, you know, the sing, a single home with, with both parents, where do you feel that in your body? You know, I usually felt it the most in my heart more than anything. Okay. And okay. when I started kind of unpacking in therapy, now these were feelings that I didn't really start having until I was er entering my early 20s because, sure. you know, I, I was so young. I didn't really. Of course much phased by you know my parents not being together for my whole life but then you know once I got older and I started getting into my own relationships you know I was always thinking like what on earth happened here like what happened to my parents what made why am I feeling so like empty in a way inside and you know those were feelings that I kind of had to um sort out really you know just yeah. by talking it out and under and feeling it first yeah so that's what I would get you to do is I'd see if you could localize that feeling. Like if you go back and you really just sort of sense, you know, that little girl who had to sort of go back between the two houses and that kind of thing, like how she felt, like where you, like you said around your heart, like, is it, a, how big would you say that feeling was like the size of like a walnut or the size of a cantaloupe or how big in your chest, if we just track that feeling, where, how big would that be? You know, like it really, I guess, depended on the day, you know, because okay. would feel more than others, um, you know, okay. because there was a lot of times where, again, I'm just completely unfazed by it because, again, this is just how my whole life has been. So there was never right. there was never the experience of the other way around, which in a way I'm also kind of grateful for, too, because then I wouldn't have to I, I thankfully didn't have to deal with any issues of you know, the actual breakup or pot or a divorce because they never got married. So, um, right. so yeah. but there's those feelings of, you know, like it is what it is, but then of course, every now and again, if I'm ever really in my feelings that day, then, and then that comes to my mind and I'm usually just like, Oh, well, what the hell? Like, but at the same time, 
you know, my father, like I said, was still always there for me. You know, he was never like absent. So I guess it was always just more of the feeling of not always having him around in moments where I think I might have needed him possibly more. Yeah. And that makes perfect sense. Yeah. (laughs) So, so what I would do, you know, what I would do if I work with you is I'd say, okay, let's, you know, put your hand over your heart. Like when you have those days where you just, that, that, that loneliness, that, that sort of heartache is there, you know, I'd get you to put your hand over your heart. I get you to really sort of sense that feeling in there. And sometimes, you know, I, I get people to tap over that area of alarm or whatever. I just want to get into that program a little bit so that you actually have some compassion and some love for yourself for, for that little girl who felt that way, who felt like she needed her dad and her dad wasn't there to go in there and just really allow yourself to feel it. And sometimes we need, you know, help or support, you know, like a somatic experiencing therapist or someone who, who, you know, deals with the body as well as the mind. I'm not, I have nothing against CBT or talk therapy or any of that stuff. But what I do have something against is just doing talk therapy, just doing cognitive work, because I don't feel it gets into that feeling aspect of it or at least deep enough because, you know, when I work with people, I get them to go really, really deep into that feeling. And we try and find that, you know, six or seven year old girl who felt lonely, who had to develop this kind of thick skin, who had to be kind of tough and see if you can go through into the softer side of her, you know, and and there's a number of different ways I use of dealing with that. But that's how we get to the root of the problem as opposed to just learning how to think differently. Because learning how to think differently, it helps for the short term, but your ego will always pull you back into those old programs. It's just, especially when you get stressed, especially when you get stressed. So if you're going through, you know, a challenge in your relationship and all that kind of thing, because my sense with you, when I read your system is you tend to freeze a lot. You tend to sort of, you know, get distracted or freeze and freeze your way out of it so that you don't feel it so much. Which is, which is a coping strategy, of course. Mm-hmm. But it, it also, it's, it's hard to kind of process when we, when we have that sort of like quote unquote safety zone of just freezing. And yep. I think so many people do that now. We go into distractions, we go, you know, I, and I'm still, I'm still a victim of that. Like if I get into an issue with, with my wife, it's like, you know, I'll zombie scroll Instagram for an hour, you know, just, just, to, just to not have to deal with that pain. Yep. And now I'm a lot more aware of it. Now I'm, now I'm a lot more of, you know, where do you feel that in my, you know, in my chest or whatever. And, you know, I'll do some breathing or I'll, I'll do some meditation or some yoga or whatever, or some movement, you know, movement's really helpful as far as that goes. But I really go back and find that, you know, that little five-year-old in me that kind of really missed his dad and, and didn't know what was happening and really reassured him. And then once I reassure him for a while, then I'm okay to go back to my wife and just kind of say, Hey, you know what, what happened there? Like, I just seem to, you know, we just seem to disconnect and that kind of thing. But it's very hard to reconnect when you're still in that child. Like, Mm -hmm. and I can see that with, I can see that with you as well. Like when you get angry, it's going to be like, you're going to have to cool down before you're able to kind of go back and, and, and kind of reconnect with that relationship again, because I think that that's a safety mechanism for you. Oh, absolutely. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, I think part of it also comes from just, you know, again, I, I've usually had to adjust my, my thoughts, my standards with so much. So I, um, where I said, forget it. And like, that's where all the aggression starts to come from. It's also a little part of my Aries moon, unfortunately. She's very fiery. (laughs) 
Well, you know, I think the thing is about seeing it. Like if you can sort of see it, and the little analogy that I draw is if you're piloting a 747 going 500 miles an hour and then you see a storm on the radar that's, that's 500 miles away, you know that you've got to start turning now. Like, yeah. you know that you've got to start, if you, if you go another 15 minutes, you're going to, you know, you're in a path, you're going to go into it for sure. So it's really, I think, a lot of, of you know, anxiety relief and, and even emotional stress relief is seeing what your triggers are, seeing that there's a pattern that, you know, that kind of builds up in your system before things kind of, you know, blow up. And in blowing up, some people get angry, some people withdraw, some people people please, some people manipulate, some people cry, you know, like everybody has their own pattern. It's just sort of recognizing, okay, what's my pattern? What's my typical pattern when things go wrong? You know, is it to get angry? And it's like, can I recognize that, that, that feeling of anger in my system before it kind of takes me over? Because once it takes you over, there's not a whole lot of, there's not a whole lot you can do about it. You know, right. because basically, and this is my issue with co cognitive therapy is they're, they're trying to tell you, okay, well, breathe, um, you know, uh, imagine yourself on a, on a calm beach or whatever, like you're in survival brain. You don't even see the option to go, go, to, go to that beach because you've already dropped so far into survival brain that there is only one path out of this that the child has taken, which is your old coping strategy, which mm -hmm. for you is to get angry. For me, it's kind of that people please or withdraw or distract. You know, so I, I know when, I, when I've got that, I know when I've got my phone in front of me uh, and I'm distracting, I'll go, okay, what are you distracting from? And it's be like, well, you know, I just had a, a bit of an issue with my stepson and, and I'm distracting. It's like, okay, you know, what can you do other than distracting? Can you really just sort of sit here and connect with yourself? And I know how, I know how sort of Pollyanna and, and sort of airy fairy that sounds, but it's the only thing that's worked. You know, it's really the only thing Like grounding myself in my body has been the only thing that's allowed me to kind of come back to my thoughts. So one of the things that I that I always tell people is you can't beat thoughts on their own turf. Once you start arguing with your mind, you're always going to lose. Like your mind is always going to win because your mind, it, it's the expert at thoughts. Yep. So you're when especially when you're upset, you're not going to be as good as thoughts. So what you have to do is go into sensation so all that energy that you put into worry or put into um, uh, aggression or people pleasing or whatever, see if you can put that energy into connecting with your own self and getting into the habit of doing that. Because once you can ground yourself in your body, then you can start seeing the situation that got you there with a whole lot more objectivity and a whole lot more agency to be able to do something about it. But while you're in survival brain, you know, there's really not a whole lot you can do to think and that's why you know when people say oh just think you know think pleasant thoughts when you're angry it's like well it doesn't work that way like it's just so hard to think in opposition to how your body feels mm -hmm. wow <laughs> um and before we get too um off topic here i will be back as well um tell me a little bit about more about your time in india Okay, so I went to this place called Oneness University. So mm -hmm. I was at a, a period, uh, I guess this is going to be 2012. So I was talking to a counselor in 2012, and she went to this place called Oneness University. And she had a lot of anxiety and stuff. So she said, you know, I really highly recommend you go there. So I went there, and uh, there was a lot of prayer and stuff. And I'm not really that religious. You know, I, 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 I like 
religions. I like studying them. I like seeing, you know, the difference between a, a monotheistic religion like, you know, Jesus, Christianity, and a, and a polytheistic religion like, uh, like um, India, in, in India, where they have all these different gods, you know, Shiva and Shakti and all these different gods. So it was really interesting just to sort of see and sort of reset and sort of because every day they get you into your body, every day they get you to do uh, a practice that some of them are easy, some of them are hard. Um, there's a lot of prayer, which I wasn't really that crazy about, but really I just, I just redefined it as, as uh, meditation because really mm. that's what it is. It's really yeah. sort of meditation and intention is really what it is. So um, it was a very interesting time there. There was a lot of people from all over the world. And it just, I think it just gave me a different perspective on anxiety as more of an ethereal, as more of a, a soul sickness in a way. You know, just that, that I was trapped in this kind of ruminating circuit and being in this sort of beautiful, peaceful setting allowed me to sort of step outside of that for a while. But here's the thing that I, I, I see with a lot of my anxious patients and stuff is they, they have a hard time when things are calm because typically what happened when they were children is things would be calm for a while and then shit would hit the fan. Ah, so and, they're just and, like waiting at that point. So they're just waiting, they're hypervigilant. So when, when things are calm and peaceful, that's often a trigger for them and they get anxious. They get, they get more alarmed because, you know, being calm and peaceful when they were younger was never safe because it was always going to be disrupted. You know, like if your father was an alcoholic or whatever, there's always going to be some destruction there, uh, a disruption, or there's going to be a family gathering like Easter or Christmas, someone was going to get drunk and the whole place would explode. So there is this sense that it wasn't safe to feel safe. So I, I definitely had that when I was there. There was points where I really did feel like, you know, at, at one with everything or at peace with everything or whatever you want to call it, enlightened. I was, I think I was enlightened for about 90 minutes on a rooftop there. Um, <laughs> and, and, but I really did. You really, I really did feel one with kind of everything. Like everything was just, there was just this sense of just peace and just, you know, I, I haven't ever, you know, felt that before and, and I hadn't felt it again until I did psychedelics uh, a couple of years later after that but India was a very it was a very interesting place because uh, at the at least at the temple that I was at it's just very everybody has such high regard for everyone else which we don't have in North America very much you know no. <laughs> everyone has such a high regard for everyone else um, eating is a very um, uh, visceral uh, process, you know, where you just, you just sit and you're just supposed to sit and just eat and just taste the food and just be present with the food. And we don't do that so much, you know, we're, we're very multitasking. We're very, there's always 15 things going on at once. Yep. And our brains are incredibly plastic. They'll adopt to things. And one of the things that I find really interesting is if you look at cartoons, if we just go off topic just for a second, if you go, if you look at cartoons and around the 1980s, you know, the Saturday morning cartoons, the frames would change uh, about every eight seconds for like, they, they'd have a scene where like one of the characters would be walking, you know, through a desert or something like that. That would last for about six to eight seconds. Now, if you look at the cartoons, the frames change about every second and a half. So it's just like we're training, we're training, our, our society just trains us to think in faster and faster and faster and faster terms, which 
necessitates just having to split our consciousness into doing three or four things at once. And our brains really aren't designed to do that and, and actually thrive. It's a very anxiety alarming state to always have to be looking out for uh, five other things to do or that other people aren't safe. And we get that on social media now too. Like there is that, that feeling that, that other people aren't safe. And oh, that's yeah. sort of, and it's showing up in the world. So when we feel like we're not safe in our sort of human global community, that creates a lot of alarm. And if you had childhood trauma where you also didn't feel safe, it's just a reminder that, that these things are happening over and over again. And I think our society is starting to unravel into this kind of us them mentality where and it's just getting more us and them us and them us and them you know we got you know pro-gun control anti-gun control pro-climate change anti-pro-abortion anyways pro-vaccine anyway so we're all being factioned out into these these small so i don't know if the people you know quote unquote the people could could mount a resistance anyway because everybody's been so factioned out in their own beliefs and their own little separate you know beliefs and echo chambers I don't know if the people could come together anymore. Now I'm getting off on a little rant here, but basically my, my underlying thing was about India was everybody there had real reverence for each other. Yeah. You know, you, when you, when you pass someone, you either touched your heart or you, you did a slight, you know, a slight nod for your head or whatever, but you acknowledged everyone. And I think there's, there's something when I go out for a walk with the dogs, I have three dogs now. My wife loves dogs. So, uh, so, uh, and I love them too. They're great. But, you know, when you walk by someone and you say, hello, it's easy, you know, and, and, and that, that feels like a nice sort of connection. You know, you don't have to, you don't have to sit there. How are you? What's going on? But just saying hello. And then they say hello. It's just like that human connection. And then when you, when you walk by someone who doesn't say hello, there, there's definitely this feeling like, ah, you know, that's just, it, it's uncomfortable. And I think that we do that on such a grand scale that, it's no wonder that anxiety and alarm are the fastest growing conditions in the world is that, is that, you know, all anxiety is separation anxiety and it's mostly separation from yourself. Uh, but we need other people. We need other people to sort of, to, to grow our own, what we call social engagement system, which is the system that human to human we use which eye contact, facial expression, tone of voice, body language, that kind of thing. When you're sitting with a friend and you're feeling calm and relaxed and you're laughing and you're having fun, that connection back and forth feeds us. But the, the reverse is also true. If you don't have that connection, if there's that, that constant disconnect, that starts to erode our, our sense of, of peace and our sense of security. And then we start descending into this us-them mentality and then we get more and more anxiety, more and more alarm, uh, which keeps me in a job for sure. But it is one of those things that I just see more and more happening. And it's really, you know, at, at its core, just this fundamental disconnection from ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we're just learning how to, how to multitask. We're learning how not really to pay attention to each other. We're not in each other's presence very much anymore with COVID either. So we don't really mature that social engagement system because that social engagement system really needs that, that eye contact, that facial expression, that tone of voice, that, that warmth that we get back from other people. And, and we're really suffering from that now. And I think it's, it's really, and hopefully there'll be a rebound. You know, once COVID, once COVID passes, you know, hopefully there'll be a rebound and going, geez, you know what? We got so detached from each other there. Let's really make an effort to kind of get back together. I don't know if that's gonna happen. I would love that to happen, 
But, you know, hopefully there will be a rebound. And typically in human history, uh, whenever we, the pendulum swings too far one way, it will usually go back the other way. Now, that was a very long rant, Taylor. I'm sorry. No. That, but I, I just go on about as soon as I get into something in my head. But you asked me about India. I think that the bottom line with India was everybody holds everybody else with reverence, at least at the temple that I was at. So it was nice to just be in that milieu where everybody was, you know, you, everybody was, was almost holy. Everybody had this sort of presence and, and we're losing that in North America. We're losing that in, in Europe too. And it is one of those things that, that glues us together as a people and allows us to feel safe. And we're losing that. First of all, you never have to apologize to me about going on a long rant, rant because I loved hearing <laughs> every bit of that because it's so true. And also you actually brought up a really great point about, you know, just, you know, people starting to see how others are not safe in a way and it starts to kind of bring back old traumas of when they felt unsafe, which makes me want to ask you now, have how much study results changed with the development of social media and all this access to information? Would you say that this has been a driving force as well into like the increase of people's anxieties and, you know, people resurfacing all of those past traumas? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, without a doubt. So on one hand, you know, if you look at our teenagers now, they don't get a whole lot of face-to-face. Even before the pandemic, they weren't getting a lot of face-to-face, you know, kind of human, you know, warmth-to-warmth interactions. Uh, and, and then once the pandemic hit, you know, they're, they're even more on their screens. So the screens, going on your screen won't really mature that social engagement system in us. Because that social engagement system that I was mentioning before about the eye contact, the tone of voice, the facial expressions, the body language, all that kind of stuff, we need that to mature our social engagement system so that we can soothe other people. And then when we soothe other people, we learn how to soothe ourselves. So what happens is when we don't mature that system, when we don't have enough face-to-face, human-to-human, not screen-to-screen, but human-to-human contact, that part of our system, that social engagement system, it's also called the human resonance circuitry that doesn't mature. And if that doesn't mature, we're not able to soothe ourselves and we're not able to soothe other people. And that's when anxiety and and depression and eating disorders and all that kind of stuff really starts to take hold because we, we never really learn how to soothe ourselves. And that's the epidemic with our kids these days is that they're not getting that human to human contact anymore. They're getting it through screens, which isn't maturing that social engagement system and isn't allowing them to soothe other people or themselves. And empathy is going down. And then you go on social media and there's all this judgment. Is she prettier than me? You know, is she thinner than me? All this, especially, especially for girls, but you know, also for boys too. You know, the big thing about boys is appearing weak. You can't appear weak. That's, that's the number one sin of any male is appearing yep. weak. So it is one of those things, and that's and and you can't show weakness at all on social media at all, especially as a boy. Um, so you know if you are gay and you are sensitive, I mean it's just your nature to be sensitive and have more of a you know a feminine side. Um, then that doesn't it, it it gets reflected poorly out into the world, and then you know people get they get shit on. You know I I, I don't have a medical license anymore, so I can swear it's one of those things that happens it happens you know like and and that's what and 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 it's so easy to sort of you know take out your own frustrations on other people and that's where we're at that's what that's what's happening and we're just getting more and more into this us them mentality 
and it's just rotting our 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 you know our our humanness it's rotting our sense of connection and without that sense of connection you know the human civilization is not going to last very well so that's what i'm saying i'm hoping after covid that we'll see how detached from each other that we were how much we we you know we we sought after money and you know money's been shown time and time again that provided that you're you know above you know, you make a reasonable living that you can, you know, have uh, a rent and, and or a home or food or whatever. Above that, you know, a whole, a lot of money doesn't really add a whole lot of happiness. Uh, yes. But- kind of like just covering yourself with a little shell and then you're just so secluded from the outside world within your riches. Yeah. And you can distract too. I used to have a joke, like I did stand-up comedy for 15 years. So in the daytime, I would be a, I, I worked at an urgent care clinic as a doctor. And at night, I would go tour the comedy clubs across the country. And um, so it, it was just really interesting to see how, how comedy helps with people, how, how laughing brings people together in a comedy club, how people just have the endorphins, like build up, build up, and how we're even losing that, how we're getting so we're getting so uh, judgmental about comedy. Like a lot of the, the big comedians won't even play colleges anymore because they just get too upset. You can't make a joke about anything anymore. And, and I think that's, that's a lot of it too. And, you know, laughter is one of those things that really joins us together. So it, it's really, you know, it's, we, we've got some work to do as human beings to kind of start, but it really starts with connecting with yourself. And that's basically what I, why I wrote the book is to show people, especially people with anxiety or eating disorders or, or OCD, how to connect with yourself, because that's really the, chi- it's the child in you that's anxious. It's the child in you that has the eating disorder. It's the child in you who has the obsessions. So it, it's, it's up to you to find that child again and show that child. And there's a number of different ways of doing that, both using neuroscience and with more kind of ethereal ways to, you know, connect with yourself because that's your biggest buffer against, you know, mental unwellness is a connection with yourself. Yeah. And I love, actually, you seem like to be the jack of all trades too, in terms of just helping people find that happiness from within, not even just in your medical practice you know, as well with your practices with, you know, meditation and everything you've learned within your time in India. And now on top of that, becoming a stand-up comedian to help together and just laugh. Like, it's really impressive. I don't think I've ever heard of another human being that does something like this. So this is awesomely unique. (laughs) Well, I was just a wonder, you know, like uh, when I was in my 30s and stuff, like why I was a stand-up comedian, why I was a a doctor, why, you know, because it, it, why it, it just seems so so disparate like just so disconnected you know or and then it became a yoga teacher later on and stuff and it was like and now I realize how it all fits together you know yeah. it all fits together now but at the time I didn't you know at the time I didn't really know why I, I did the things that I did but now I really see how it all sort of comes together and that's that's why I love the book because it you know the book is like nothing that's ever been written on anxiety before you know, most things that are written tell you, you know, don't pay attention to your thoughts. They're not real. Um, you know, prove to yourself that your thoughts aren't real. It's like, no, I, I, the, the book is about, no, connect with yourself first. Connect with sensation first. Connect with your body first. And then once you're grounded in your body, then you can go back into your thoughts. But don't try and, and beat thoughts on their own turf because they'll always beat you. Right. And, 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 it's, and it's demoralizing you know, to be beaten by your thoughts every single time. 
So you really need to learn how to connect with yourself first. And that kind of anxiety proofs you because once you have that connection with yourself that you probably didn't have when you were younger or else you wouldn't be anxious in the first place. Once you develop that and you start seeing that, hey, you know what, this hurts, this feeling of, of alarm or anxiety hurts, but you know what, if I sit with it and I, and, I, and I have comfort for my younger self and I connect with that younger self, there's something I can actually do about it rather than distract or rather than try to, to analyze the thoughts for, for veracity because that's a trap. It really is. Like it really is a trap. And, and so is on some level positive, positive psychology until you regulate your body, until you get into your body, you connect with yourself, those thoughts are always going to rule your mind, you know? So don't try and fight thoughts while you're still in anxiety because you're, you're operating at a disadvantage. It's like taking five shots of tequila and trying to drive yourself home. You know, <laughs> your brain is impaired. Your brain is impaired on, you know, cortisol, epinephrine. You're not thinking clearly. So why are you trying to to rationally look at your fears when you don't have a rational brain to do that. Yeah, absolutely. One other thing too, I wanted to point out, um, especially in relation to your experiences with, with psychedelics, um, there is this show now it's not an ad. I'm not, I'm not intentionally plugging these guys, but it's on net, not on Netflix. It's on Hulu. Um, it's called nine perfect strangers with Nicole Kidman. Have you heard of it before? I yeah, vaguely though, vaguely. I, I the Nicole Kidman part, I, I I it triggered my memory. Yeah. So it's actually not a pretty bad show. I mean, the premise of it probably could have used a little bit more work, but essentially, the the without giving too much away, basically nine people are chosen to to enter this wellness program that's hosted by Nicole Kidman's character, and she and a couple other um, associates are using the works of of psilocybin to okay. on the on the people and these are okay. all people that have basically come from their own set of of trauma and damages one been through has been through just a really bad relationship then there's a married couple like a newlywed that are working on reconnecting uh there's a family that's recovering from you know a, one of their children committing suicide and these are all families that are or all people that have just been through their own sense of turmoil so nicole kidman basically uses those psychedelics as like their treatment and they they are based off of i guess like who who has what type of trauma and what they deal with um and it's a really interesting show because you get to see the progress that the the characters make within the show it's not bad definitely a a good watch for sure but they're not actually doing this, this is acting right they're not actually doing the psychedelics to my knowledge, right. Yeah, <laughs> to my okay. knowledge. Yeah, okay. Yeah, because <laughs> I think that would be kind of unethical to make actors, you know, do it. Because it can't, it can screw you up. Like, like I, I was not right for about two years after ayahuasca. I believe so that. So it was kind of like, yeah. So it's, it's not a panacea. And that's what people, people say after they, they read the book, they say, oh, should I, should I do, do uh, psychedelics? Because it seemed to really help you. It's like, well, I don't know if it helped me so much at a very sort of, healing level what it did was it showed me that my anxiety was actually old trauma that was stored in my body uh in my solar plexus area uh rather than the thoughts of my mind so that was it was more of a practical thing it wasn't like i had this revelation that i'm i'm at peace i'm at one you know i'm one with the universe which i kind of had during that time but it didn't kind of stick with me after some people it seems to stick Mm -hmm. But for me, it was just this sort of revelation as I was kind of coming down, 
where it said in a voice, I don't even know if it was a voice or, or what, what was it, but it said like your anxiety, what you call your anxiety is in your solar plexus and it's purple and it's sharp and it's about the size of a fist and it pushes up on your heart. And it's like, yeah, I can really feel that. That's really where it is. And that's the source. That's what I was told. This is the source of your anxiety. It's not in your mind. Right. So once I had that, and once I kind of, you know, after the two years, I kind of recovered from that. Then I started looking at writing the book. And then in 2018, I started writing the book um, and, and healing myself, you know, kind of with somatic therapy and different things, but really focusing on this alarm that was stored in my body. And I, and I, I really encourage my patients to not to call it anxiety, to call it alarm, because that's what it is. Like if you're out for lunch and, and you're with a friend who's never experienced anxiety before, and, and they say, well, how are you doing? And you say, well, I'm feeling really anxious today. They probably won't know what you mean. But if you say, I'm feeling really alarmed today, everyone's been alarmed. So they can kind of go, oh, okay, well, that's, that makes more sense. So it's treating the alarm in the body rather than the anxieties of the mind that really allowed me to heal and my patients to heal. And I have people that, you know, have had anxiety for 30 years that I talk to and say, and they say, you know, I've been doing therapy for 30 years and I've learned more from you in the last 90 minutes than I have in the last 30 years of therapy, which is great, you know, because, and, and it, there's no better teachers than the people that have been there themselves. I was, I had crippling anxiety after ayahuasca. I was suicidal. You know, I was like, there, I, there was nowhere that it was, it was this feeling like there's, if I look right, that's an abhorrent situation. If I look left, that's an abhorrent situation too. There was no, there was no middle ground. There was no, and it's very hard to explain. There was just no sense of safety anywhere, you know? And even when you're alarmed, sometimes, you know, you can go to your bed or whatever, even if you're feeling horribly anxious, there's still that sense that you are there and you are you, even though you're in pain. But when, after ayahuasca, there was no, it, it was almost like that I wasn't even in my body anymore. Like it was just this, I was almost, I was almost gone. So it is one of those things that I, when people say, should I do um, um, psychedelics to sort of help with my anxiety, depression, um, alcoholism, all that kind of stuff. I said, you know, maybe consider doing six months of somatic therapy first to sort of give yourself a grounding in that. And if you still need something after that, then, you know, consider going for it. MDMA is a different story. MDMA isn't tra uh, classically a, a psychedelic and they're using it a lot now in PTSD because it does, it does uh, give you a huge serotonin hit, which makes you love everything, including yourself, you know, which is probably <laughs> the biggest, which is probably the biggest thing where you kind of see how badly you judge yourself and stuff. So I, I can really see the, the, the merit and the safety in MDMA mm -hmm. as opposed to psilocybin, ayahuasca, peyote, LSD, all those ones, because they, they really blow the back of your head off. Like it, it really, you, you, you can't think. Uh, on MDMA, you still have your faculties. But on, depending on how much you take, of course, of the psychedelics, but um, the psychedelics really kind of blow the back of your head off. It really, especially for us anxious people that really yeah. rely on our thought structures to keep us safe. You know, when, when those thought structures get dismantled by psychedelics, it's, it's a horrifying experience. You know, it, it, hands down, you know, has been the, the most terrifying experience of my life, ayahuasca. LSD was bad too. Uh, and, and there was points in it that was really beautiful and amazing and and just ethereal you know you do feel like you're one with everything you do feel like there's that you can communicate directly with your unconscious mind and that kind of thing um but you know it comes at a cost 
you know, and, and it's, yeah. it's not a panacea. And I, I think, you know, with things like television shows and that kind of stuff, uh, you know, psychedelics and somatic therapy is where therapy is going to be going in the next five to 10 years for sure. And it's really got to be done in this sort of, you know, structured environment where it's safe and, and um, you know, the, the drugs themselves are very safe. Psychedelics themselves are among the safest compounds, um, but they can screw your brain up. Like the, mm -hmm. it's not like it's a metabolic thing. They can make you see things that you don't want to see and you have to be kind of ready for it. So it, it's definitely not a panacea. Uh, I would, I would look at somatic therapy first uh, before I would do any kind of psychedelic. And then uh, at that point, you know, consider microdosing with psilocybin because you can, you can titrate that a bit. You know, it's not like you're taking this big hit of uh, magic mushrooms slash psilocybin. Right. Uh, and your brains, you know, it just explodes your brain all at once. Uh, you can try, you know, uh, microdosing and it gives you a little taste uh, of what it's like um, without having to go all in. Um, so that's my thing. Like, I'm really conflicted about that because people say, you know, like the LSD really, um, if it wasn't for LSD, I probably wouldn't have written the book because it was so pivotal in that, but it does come at a cost. So it's not something that kind of like, Hey, you know what? I've had this for years. I should maybe do LSD and that's going to cure me. It's like, no, it's not. That's extremely rare. It, it, it's, it's not uncommon in people that have addictions, you know, al alcoholism. I, I, I know a few people who were, you know, alcoholics and they did ayahuasca and then they lost their taste for doing alcohol after that. Wow. That's it's, it happens, but it's not, it's not, I wouldn't go in there depending on it. So right. I know I got off on a little bit of a rant again, but, but that's the thing about psychedelics. People want to know because they hear these magical stories of these people taking psychedelics and all of a sudden, you know, thank you, Lord, I'm cured, but it, it, it's not a panacea and it doesn't work for everyone. And in fact, I would probably say out of the people that I know that have done it, maybe 15%, maybe one out of seven get a really good result from it. And the other ones, you know, either get a bad result or don't really get much of anything out of it other than uh, an interesting trip into your own psyche. I agree with that. And I feel like, and I, I've had my own not so great experiences with LSD. I actually did it twice. And the second time I only did it because I, I hoped that I was going to have somewhat of a better experience. Right. Spoiler yeah. alert, I didn't. And yeah. I feel like the, the big concern when it comes to an anxious person and, and a drug like LSD, you know, you, you're in this state where it's like you kind of need to feel a sense of control within your own self mentally. So then totally. when you're doing drugs like LSD, I, I know you know as well, you're basically surrendering all of that control. Totally, Taylor. <laughs> I, I hear you. I, I hear you. It's exactly, exactly when you're coming out of it. That's exactly what it feels like. I know I've kept you for a while. Um, no, I you're good. Just, I want to just yeah. jump right into the Q&A with you. I, I was asking around because I knew this was going to be a really fun thing to talk about. Uh, so I had taken in some questions just some from, you know, my support network, some friends, yeah, a sure. few of my following, um, and just see really what everyone wanted to know out of this podcast. So the sure. first question we'll get into, um, just what insights have your studies uncovered that changed how you react, how you act or react in your own life? Yeah, I think it's just realizing that there, there is a, a program for certainty. 
Like we do have this program in our minds for certainty. Human beings like to know what they're going to do next. The, the human brain is an anticip anticipatory prediction machine. And often life is kind of, it's been said that life is a simulation. So basically we take what happened yesterday <laughs> and we, pro and, we pro and, this, and there's a great TED talk about this too, about how, uh, you know, life is a hallucination. And because, you know, the brain's lazy, like the brain is actually quite lazy. It doesn't really want to do a whole lot of extra work. So what it does is it takes what happened to us before and it puts us into the future. It puts us in the future. So we don't really, we don't really change. And that's why, you know, Nicole LaPera, the holistic psychologist, you know, I think she's got like 4 million plus followers on Instagram now. She's awesome. Like Nicole and I have conversed back and forth and she actually endorsed the book. It's at the very top of the book. I saw that. Yeah. And, and, yeah. And, and it's, it's one of those things that, you know, we, we need to understand where, where we kind of come from, where our background is, and be able to kind of look at how much we need certainty and how much we can embrace uncertainty. And I think that's really when we start to heal as we start embracing uncertainty. There's another great book called uh, Existential Kink by uh, Carolyn Elliott, where she talks about when you feel badly, embrace that feeling like embrace the jealousy like don't don't run from it don't resist it like embrace the jealousy embrace the 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 sadness embrace the grief because then you have some feeling of agency or control over it rather than just being a helpless you know cork in the ocean so i don't remember what the original original question was taylor i i kind of went off there oh what have i learned about about from from academic stuff Yes. It's just really learning that the, the, the subconscious mind, the unconscious mind needs a program. And if we don't give it a program, it will just run from our past. So mm -hmm. it, it'll just take our past and our past traumas and keep throwing them into our future. And that's, and what I was going to talk about with Nicole was she has this thing called the future self journal. So you journal as you, you know, as your future self who has gotten by your anxiety and your eating disorder, your OCD, you know, you think, oh, it's, it's so wonderful to be able to sort of be able to go out and not worry about if people are looking at me. It's so wonderful to be able, because then you're creating a new simulation and you're giving the unconscious mind a program that actually will help you rather than just automatically deferring back into the old default program, which is basically going to be the same as your life yesterday and your life five years ago. Right. For the next question, how does prolonged abuse impact? And this is a three-parter. Uh, so the first would be your brain development. Second would be your substance abuse. And then the third would be any generational trauma. Okay. That's a big one. Okay. Yes. <laughs> so, so, most of your brain development, like the, the vast majority of brain development is in the first three and a half years. So, you know, 80% of your brain development develops in the first three and a half years. So depending on what your original, you know, and I even go back to, did, did you have an invitation to exist? Were you a wanted baby? You know, or, you know, a, a lot of people I deal with who were adopted, who don't know their birth parents, and there is this feeling of anxiety. And one of the things that I see quite frequently with adoptees is this feeling of not good enough. You know, and I think that comes from, and this sounds kind of ethereal, but I think that comes from this place of like, I really wasn't wanted originally. So I have to be, you know, extra great or extra good to be able to, to accept myself. And I don't, you know, I just see that pattern so commonly in people who A, either didn't have an invitation to exist, like I have one um, patient who uh, their, his parents were 17 
when he was born. Now, clearly he wasn't a, you know, kind of a, he was an accident kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And he's always had this feeling of not good enough. Like he wasn't wanted and he wasn't, and the, his parents were bright. They loved him. They, you know, they, they gave him every opportunity, but there was, he always had this sense that he just wasn't good enough, you know? And I think that that comes into sort of, uh, or if you, if your mother, you know, when she was carrying you had a lot of trauma, you know, if she had a lot of trauma that, that does go into us, it really does. And I think it really does make us very sensitive. And if you're a sensitive, you know, if you're a sensitive soul and you grow up in a, a loving, caring environment, you'll do fine. If you're a sensitive soul and you grow up with some trauma, then you start getting into problems. And that kind of leads me into the, the second thing about how does, how does trauma, what was the second question? Like how does trauma affect uh, substance abuse and generational trauma, which I know yeah. you just touched a little bit on the generational trauma. Yeah, I'll do that a little bit too. Substance abuse. I mean, basically, when you don't feel good enough, or when you don't feel safe or secure, the circuits for for pain and pleasure in the brain are very similar. In fact, a lot of them are the same. So what happens is that when we feel that pain, um, substances will go in and they'll calm that down they'll ease off that pain. So a lot of people who are addicted aren't so much looking for a high as they're looking for relief from that pain. So anxiety usually comes from some sort of childhood trauma, not always, but we can talk about generational trauma too. Um, But anxiety usually comes from some sort of childhood trauma. So when we don't have that feeling of connection with ourselves, we, it's painful it's very, very painful. So things, you know, and we can be distracted by, you know, the internet, we can be addicted to, to uh, shopping, we've been addicted to porn, we can be addicted to, to buying things, you, you know, you can be addicted to so many things to get that dopamine that comes in that kind of soothes that pain of, of not being really not feeling good enough, or that feeling of alarm. And most addicts, have childhood trauma. That's just how it works. So they're not so much trying to get high as trying to take something that kind of calms that, that incredible pain that they feel. And the last minute about generational trauma, my friend Mark Willen wrote this book called It Didn't Start With You. And he talks about how traumas are handed down. There's a great saying that says that we are, we are raised by our grandparents, which means that the way that your, your parents were parented was the way that you're, they're, they're going to parent you. So we, we do hold these traumas in our families and being a family doctor, I saw that as well. And if you look at uh, Rachel Yehuda's work out of Mount Sinai in New York, uh, she deals with a lot of uh, children of, of Holocaust survivors and how they have a much higher rate of depression and anxiety than the general population. Um, because the, that trauma, either through non-coding DNA or something that we're not aware of, gets handed down to them from their parents. So there is that generational trauma. I do see people that say, hey, look, you know, my parents were great. They're still together. They love each other. They love me and my sister. They, you know, they, they were really there for me, but yet I have this incredible anxiety. And I look back into their history, you know, and they had like a, a murder, you know, like two generations back or, you know, some serious trauma. Like it, it can sort of, you know, it can skip a generation too. It's, it's really odd the way that I see you know, people present to me. So when someone comes in and says, I got a, had a great childhood, one of two things could happen. One is that they didn't have a great ch- childhood and they're fooling themselves because we do that. We have lots of blind spots. And two is it could be generational. It could be something that, that 
one of our, our you know, ancestors, you know, fairly, usually fairly close, but like uh, parent or grandparent or great grandparent had this issue and they have the same issue. And, and I see that in families all the time. So um, that intergenerational trauma is a really, it's a really interesting piece when we see it because it, it, there is that nature nurture kind of debate going on. And how much of the stuff are we actually born with? You know, there, and of course there's interuterine trauma too, when, you know, if your mother's stressed or whatever, but how much of that trauma, you know, was handed down through your family? And, and it's a really, it's a very interesting subject. And if you're interested in intergenerational trauma, I really would um, encourage you to read that book. It didn't start with you by Mark Wolin because it's a great book. Yeah, it sounds like it. I've actually been writing down all of the book titles that you've been giving me because okay. I, <laughs> I've been definitely looking to expand for sure. Um, and also, I love that you brought up the nature versus nurture because that actually brings me the next question, which was, how does nature versus nurture intertwine with physical neuropathology? Uh, yeah, like what, what kind of circuits in the brain, you know, get, get uh, affected by specific types of trauma? I mean, if you look at the hippocampus, that, that's uh, an area, it's, a very, it's an integrative structure of the brain. And the hippocampus works with the amygdala to kind of, the, what I say with the, the hippocampus, it kind of time date stamps memories. And, and if, if that time date stamp isn't there, if something that, that traumatized us when we were younger comes into our awareness, it doesn't feel like it's coming from the past. It feels like it's actually still happening. So the amygdala uh, kind of in, doesn't have any sense of time. So amygdala records everything. But if the hippocampus isn't online as well, it doesn't give us that sense that this is over. This happened in the past. This is a memory. This isn't what's happening now. And what happens when we're younger is we have a lot of trauma and, and cortisol and epinephrine, which are the stress hormones in our system. Um, what happens is that they, that paralyzes the hippocampus. So what we do is we get this amygdala-only processing. And when we get amygdala-only processing, we, we have no sense of time around that memory. So when something cues that memory, either a memory or, or something that we see, then we go back to that place because we didn't have the hippocampus there to kind of tell us, hey, this, is, this happened in the past. This isn't still happening now. So that's one of the ways that childhood trauma really affects our ability to kind of integrate memories so that we realize that they're coming from the past rather than reliving them and feeling like they're happening still. Right, right. Um, and I think just for time's sake, that was all the questions that we did have. Um, but you guys are able to get uh, Dr. Russell's book, Anxiety Rx, a new prescription for anxiety relief from the doctor who created it. Uh, that link will be available uh, for through Amazon on the uh, description for the episode. And Dr. Russell, how is everybody going to be able to find you? Where can they follow you throughout your studies and just everything that you have to share within their, your field? Right now, uh, Instagram is usually the place that I that I go for most of the things. I'm going to start doing more YouTube stuff soon. But if you just uh, Google the Anxiety MD, not the Anxiety Doctor, the Anxiety MD, um, that you know brings up my YouTube, it brings up my Instagram, it brings up my website. You know, my book comes out of that. You'll be able to just Google the Anxiety MD. I'm pretty easy to find that way. Awesome. And this has been. 
everything and more than what I was hoping it would be. I am so glad to have had you on and really thank you again for, for joining me on this episode. Seriously. Yeah. Thanks Taylor. It's been great. I, I, I see people and it's like, I know that I'm supposed to talk to them. So it's my little intuitive side. So yeah, it was great talking, talking with you. So anytime, you know, connect with me, I'm happy to, I'm happy to chat with you anytime. Such a privilege. Seriously. Thank you so much. And I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. I hope it's the weather's nice and sunny out there as over here. Yeah, not so much, but I will enjoy the day anyway. <laughs> thanks, thanks, Taylor. All right. Bye. Bye for now.